Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. It's Diwali, and as the Festival of Lights brightens homes and hearts, I want to extend warm greetings to all. I'm wishing you a Diwali that brings happiness, prosperity, and joy to you and all your family. And this sentiment goes out to everyone, regardless of faith. While Diwali brings us much-needed light and love, Canada is serving up winter vibes as well, so it's the perfect time to cozy up and tune into today's show, where you can warm up with conversations that ignite our minds and soothe our souls. Here's what's coming up. The first conversation today takes us to the heart of human resilience and compassion amidst the Gaza humanitarian emergency. Lauren Ravon from Oxfam Canada joins me representing the Human Coalition's vital efforts. Their dedication to providing essential aid in Gaza is a beacon of hope in these divided times, and Lauren's insights will shed light on the Coalition's mission to bring relief and dignity to those in dire need. Navigating the turbulent waters of teenage parenting is no small feat. Allie Payne, our trusted parenting expert, returns to what she said to help us steer through the challenges with grace. She'll offer her seasoned advice on avoiding parenting whiplash this week and fostering strong, respectful relationships with our teens. The echoes of the pandemic still resonate in our educational systems, revealing significant gaps in literacy and numeracy. Julie Diamond, an experienced educator and founder of Diamond Teachers Group, is here to discuss these pressing issues. She'll provide valuable strategies for parents to support their children's learning journey and help close the pandemic-induced gaps. In life's more trying chapters, like the decision to separate, guidance is invaluable. Dr. Barbara Landau of Separation Pathways brings her unique blend of legal and psychological expertise to today's show. For those navigating the complexities of separation or divorce, Dr. Landau offers compassionate and constructive advice to ease the process. Well, Anne Brody takes a brief respite this week. Her commitment to delivering top-notch entertainment remains unshaken. Don't miss her interview today with Charlotte Stout from Apple TV's The Morning Show, but also pop on over to whatshesaidtalk.com after the show to catch Anne's weekly roundup where she spotlights the best in entertainment for us. So whether you're seeking enlightenment on global humanitarian efforts, guidance through the parenting maze, educational support, or navigating personal challenges, what she said is here to accompany you through these shorter days with stories that matter, right here on 105.9 The Region. You hold, I will sing you. In today's first interview, we're delving into a situation that's unfolding far from our doorsteps, yet hits close to the heart of anyone who values human dignity and the sanctity of life. The Gaza humanitarian emergency has escalated to a point where urgent international support is needed, and leading the charge among those offering a lifeline is the Humanitarian Coalition. Joining me today is Lauren Ravon from Oxfam Canada, a key figure in this coalition of hope, who brings with her a wealth of experience and a deep commitment to humanitarian aid. 
As the situation in Gaza continues to deteriorate, Lauren and her team are working tirelessly to provide essential services and support to those caught in the crossfire of conflict. In a time where the world feels more divided than ever, their work is a testament to what can be achieved when compassion and action come together. Lauren, welcome to what she said. Hi, Candace. Thanks so much for having me on today. So your your work is more important than ever, and I'm really eager to hear how the Humanitarian Coalition and Oxfam Canada is making a difference in Gaza and how our listeners can be a part of this critical mission. So can you start by telling us more about the Humanitarian Coalition and about Oxfam Canada? So sort of a two-parter here. Fantastic. Well, first, I just want to say thank you for covering the humanitarian angle of this conflict. A lot of the commentary in the conflict is very loaded, very politicized, you know, people taking different positions in different camps. And at the end of the day, what we have to remember is these are people that we're talking about, people and civilians, both in Israel and in Palestine, that are suffering today. And we really want to make sure that the attention stays on that and the importance of providing relief to civilians and building a path towards peace. So very happy to be on to discuss that today. Oxfam Canada is um, an international organization, part of the global Oxfam family, working in about 60 countries around the world. We do humanitarian work, long-term development work with um, communities and partners in countries around the world, and advocacy. Um, and Oxfam Canada is one of the founding members of the Humanitarian Coalition that you referenced. The Humanitarian Coalition was formed to bring together some of the large humanitarian organizations in Canada to fundraise jointly when an emergency hits. So to say, in times of crisis, if you think of an earthquake, um, a tsunami, a conflict breaking out, it's much better if our organizations work together to draw attention to the problem with the Canadian public, to mobilize Canadians. Um, you know, to channel empathy in terms of donations to get humanitarian um, aid to the ground as fast as possible. And so in any large emergency, the Humanitarian Coalition members, our 12 member agencies, work together. And the situation that we're facing today in Gaza is no different than it would be in the past. Despite the very charged nature of um, the conflict, we work as we always do. We come together in a way that follows our humanitarian principles, um, you know, impartiality, neutrality, focusing on civilians and populations first um, and try to mobilize Canadians to be as generous as possible. And our experience with the Humanitarian Coalition is that Precisely by working together, we're an organ- a coalition that brings together faith-based organizations, larger, smaller organizations with um, presence across Canada, presence in communities. By working together, we're able to get the word out, um, convey the complexities of any situation we're facing in simpler terms, and also very often work with the Canadian government to get more support to amplify Canada- Canadians' generosity. And so in this case, has been the case for several of our latest humanitarian appeals, the government of Canada has agreed to match funds that Canadians, so individuals like you and me, give to the humanitarian coalition to provide a humanitarian response to this crisis. And so that means that um, up until November 12th, any dollar that a Canadian gives to the humanitarian coalition to respond to the emergency in Gaza will be matched by the Canadian government. So 
If you give $10, we will have $20 to respond to the uh, the response. And I know you mentioned there's 12 members. I don't want you to mention them all. That could take a long time. But maybe you could just name a few of the members of the coalition so people have, are, have an awareness of who is involved in this. Of course. So as I mentioned, it's an interesting coalition because it has a diversity of actors who are all in the humanitarian space, um, but who, you know, besides our different approaches or different mandates, are very coordinated in our humanitarian commitment. And so you can think of an organization like Oxfam. That's one of the founding members. In this case, we also have Islamic Release. That's a faith-based organization that's responding. Um, organizations like Save the Children, focusing on children's rights. Um, the Canadian Food Grains Bank, that's an expert and a leader in food security and food provision in emergency contexts. So different strengths. Um, uh, to give you more flavor of what that looks like, Oxfam is known globally in the humanitarian space for expertise in water and sanitation. So in any humanitarian response, Oxfam will be providing access to clean water, sanitation kits, hygiene kits for, for communities, rehabilitating destroyed, um, whether it's um, water uh, purification systems, drilling boreholes, um, providing, for example, uh, safe latrines in refugee sent, uh, camps or displacement camps. And then other members of the coalition might be focusing more on food delivery, on medical assistance, on um, providing assistance to disabled people who have been hit by conflict or disasters. So by working together um, and fundraising together, we're making sure that we're covering all the bases of what's required in a humanitarian response. You, you mentioned earlier that this is a really politically charged, uh, you know, atmosphere that we find ourselves in. And given the complex political landscape surrounding the Gaza humanitarian crisis, how does the coalition navigate these challenges to ensure aid reaches those in needs without getting entangled in the conflict's politics. I feel like you must be constantly fighting against that pull into that. So it is challenging, and it's not the first time that we face this sort of challenge as a coalition in the sense that most um, emergencies have some political dimension. Even natural disasters are often caused by climate change that has political drivers. So to think that, you know, any humanitarian emergency could be devoid of power plays in politics is probably naive. Obviously, in this circumstance, it's much more pronounced. Um, but I think it's important to remind people that as humanitarian organizations, we have four guiding principles that unite all of the members of the coalition. And those are an adherence to, um, to putting forward humanity, neutrality, impartiality, and independence. And so that means that in our response, we will um, provide uh, aid to those in need, regardless of identity, race, religion. It means that we stay neutral, so we're not aligning with either faction in a crisis. Um, independence means that we're focusing on international humanitarian law. And so having these principles collectively helps guide our response. Now, that being said, um, abiding by these four principles doesn't mean that we do not look at the power dynamics at play in a conflict or in, a, in any crisis that is driving the problem, because that would not help us do our job and our humanitarian job well. And so in this case, and it's rather unique in um, humanitarian responses that we've been responding to, in this case, the nature of the conflict means that 
we can't even be responding at the moment. So um, an organization like Oxfam, we've been um, in Gaza for about 50 years. We have staff, uh, many staff in Gaza. In other circumstances, we would be getting into gear immediately in terms of, as I mentioned, water, sanitation, protection services for civilians. Right now, we can't because our staff are literally running for their lives. Um, we've had about um, – about 90% of our staff are now displaced from their homes, have fled their homes. Um, a, a significant portion of them, their homes have been entirely destroyed. And so they're living um, you know, with family members. They're literally on the run. And so in these circumstances, and I'm speaking about the Oxfam team, but it would be similar for other members of the humanitarian or, um, coalition. In these circumstances, we cannot be doing our job. We cannot be providing humanitarian assistance. And so not addressing what is making it impossible for us to respond at the full scale that's required would not be the humanitarian thing to do. And that's why an organization like Oxfam and many members of the humanitarian coalition have been actively calling for a ceasefire. And the reason for that is that the situation is so, so dire. It's catastrophic um, in Gaza. And if we don't have a ceasefire, we cannot be responding. We've seen in Gaza that the healthcare system has now um, in effect, collapsed. Um, I talked to you about Oxfam's focus on water and sanitation. The water system in Gaza is at near collapse. Um, we're looking that, um, you know, the waste management systems and water treatment facilities are now all uh, collapsed. So we cannot be responding to those issues, providing water, rehabilitating water access, if our staff are literally being bombed. Um, and so in this case, I, I think it's important to convey the, the fact that a call for a ceasefire is not taking position um, with any side of the conflict. It's saying we are at risk if we want to do our work. And if we do not do our humanitarian work, people's lives are on the line. We're going to take a quick commercial break and uh, we'll be right back with Lauren Ravon from Oxfam Canada and the Humanitarian Coalition. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. It's the same old Okay, we're back with Lauren Ravon from Oxfam Canada and the Humanitarian Coalition. We touched briefly before the break, Lauren, about what is happening on the ground, how, you know, your staff is displaced. So can we talk about the realities on the ground there? What does it look like for people in Gaza right now? Of course. So I just want to go back as well to how this conflict started and recognize the, you know, o o close to 1500 lives lost in Israel. Hostages are still being held in Gaza, Israeli hostages. So this is a crisis that has hurt people in Gaza and people in Israel. We're focusing on the humanitarian situation in Gaza in particular because Israel as a country has social safety nets, has hospital, has infrastructure to respond to the need of their people. The needs in Gaza right now are skyrocketing. Um, we've seen that there's about 10,000 people that have been killed um, up to now in Gaza. The majority are women and children. About half are children who have been killed under bombings and shelling. Um, you know, there's Probably over 12,000 injured. Many are still under the rubble. Um, 
perhaps most starkly, about 1.4 million people um, in Gaza have now been displaced. So these are people who have fled, um, left their homes either under the bombing or because of an evacuation call. Um, and so people are, you know, we've heard of, of families who are living 40, 50 people together because that's the only place they can find shelter. As I mentioned, the, the medical system has collapsed. So that means that if you're pregnant, if you're about to deliver a baby, if you have a child in the NICU, these hospitals no longer have power um, and the hospitals are also at fear of being bombed. And so um, basic medical services are no longer available. Um, and then, you know, Gaza is a territory that has been occupied um, and so relies on outside aid for fuel, for food, for medical um um, supplies, none of that is coming through right now. And so we're seeing a situation where acute hunger is escalating. And we see things like waterborne diseases. If you don't have access to clean water, things can escalate very fast, going from a very bad situation to a catastrophic situation. And so these are the, the areas that the humanitarian coalition wants to be intervening on in terms of food security, medical support, water and sanitation, access to clean drinking water. This is so frustrating, too, because you can't get in to help. I mean, it, it must be driving you crazy that you can't get in there to help these people. Uh, as I know, it is it is driving a lot of Canadians crazy that we can't do that. So what can we do? You mentioned that the government is offering um, a matching program. When people go to, say, the Humanitarian Coalition and they donate, do they choose what charity it goes to or do you share that amongst everybody? Yeah. So on how we're distributing aid and responding on the ground, an organization like Oxfam has still some capacity, but is so much lower than if the situation was safe to operate. So for example, we've been doing cash distributions to targeted vulnerable families. We've been doing some food distribution um, and the distribution of um, hygiene kits for families. So there is some operations on the ground, but it's a drop in the bucket in terms of what we would be able to respond with if we didn't have this fear. And as I said, our staff literally fleeing for their lives and the fact that trucks with aid cannot get across the border. Um, when a Canadian decides to give to, wants to give to the response, provide humanitarian um, support, they can either give to the humanitarian coalition centrally or to any of the member agencies. So for example, you can go to the humanitarian coalition website and make a donation. You can go to the Oxfam Canada um, uh, website and make a donation. What we do is tally it all up and that's how we work with the government of Canada match to make sure that every so we will tally up all the donations received and up to 10 million dollars the government of Canada will match it so that's why we talk about a two for one donation um, and this is in response to the government of Canada recognizing the expertise of the humanitarian coalition and knowing that by providing the match there's an incentive for Canadians to be even more generous um, I don't want people to feel discouraged and to think you know why would I give now if everything is on hold? All of our organizations are able to operate in some capacity. The importance of responding now is that by giving donations now, as soon as we're able to operate, we'll have the means to rush in and work with our community partners to be providing aid. And we know that uh, responding to the disaster will take months, if not years, to rebuild, to get back to the level that was already a tragically difficult situation in Gaza. Even to get back to that level will take many months or years. And so 
every dollar that is donated will um, have serve a purpose in Gaza in terms of responding to rebuilding water systems, rebuilding sanitation, rebuilding hospitals, um, rebuilding livelihoods and and food infrastructure. So it's not uh, it's not in vain by any means. We are, uh, and this is why the uh, Canadian government gave the match now to say while it is on our collective minds, while it is in the media, we want to make sure that Canadians are hearing about it and providing those donations so that we're ready to go as soon as there's a ceasefire, as soon as the bombing and the shelling stops. And and beyond uh, financial contributions, which some people may find difficult given the current um, economic situation going on uh, globally, uh, what else can people do? Of course. So part of this is also getting the word out. I think that there's been so much media coverage around the situation that the humanitarian dimension of it is sometimes lost in the shuffle of the political commentary. And so even even if you're not able to contribute, sharing the information of the humanitarian coalition, the call for donations, sharing information about the human stories behind this tragedy are very important. I would encourage uh, your listeners to go follow our Instagram account for example, where we have um, firsthand testimonies of my colleagues in Gaza. So the dozens of people who are there telling the stories of their families, of the realities that they're facing, you know, a child's ninth birthday taking place under bombing. Um, I think it's really important to have that human face and understand that behind all the rhetoric and the kind of inflamed political language, these are people that we're talking about. These are children that might not be born. These are children that are not in school, that are running for their lives that might be injured, um, you know, elderly that might not be able to move and are being told to evacuate. So, you know, following us, I think, on social media and then speaking about these stories, um, the the human face of this tragedy is very important. Well, that seems like an excellent place to end this interview. So could you share maybe some of the social channels then or the website where people can go and find out more? Of course. So you can visit uh, the Humanitarian Coalition. As I said, this regroups all of our 12 organizations and we're uh, working together. So that's humanitariancoalition.ca. And as I said, any donation you make to the Humanitarian Coalition will be matched up until November 12th. You can also go to the Oxfam Canada website, so oxfam.ca. And again, if you choose to give directly to Oxfam, it is part of the Humanitarian Coalition's initiative and the donation there will be matched. And I would particular, encourage you to go follow um, Oxfam Canada's Instagram feed, because that's where we have the most firsthand accounts of people that we work with um, and are in close communication with in Gaza to hear their stories and to amplify their voices. All right. Lauren, thank you so much for joining me and for the important work that you're doing. Um, it was been, it's been a pleasure talking to you, but under terrible circumstances. So let's have you back again someday uh, when you can share some successes in the area. I would love that and really appreciate the time today. Thank you.
In the high-stakes game of raising teenagers, many parents find themselves caught in a dizzying back-and-forth, struggling to balance discipline with understanding. Today, we're joined by Allie Payne, what she says parenting expert, who will shed light on how to navigate this parenting whiplash and cultivate genuine, respectful connections with our teens. With her hands-on experience and strategic approach, Allie is here to guide us through the complexities of modern parenting. Welcome back, Allie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I, you, you know, you often send me these topics in advance. And I have to say, when you sent this one to me, I thought, where were you when I needed you? <laughs> <laughs> 10 years ago, it's such a good topic. So could you start by defining parenting whiplash and why it's such a common experience for parents of teens? Yeah, sure. So the whiplash effect that I hear from so many frustrated and exhausted parents who just desperately want to change the few things from their child or or maybe do it totally differently and have incredible intention and are setting out to do this and then end up in a whiplash. And it sounds like I want to do this different, but I will do what I know because that's what our brains do. Uh, I'm going to do what I know. So I need to, you know, be strict and I need to be firm and let my teenager know who's the boss. And and then there's the 180, which is, I want to do this different. I'm just going to ask nicely and, um, you know, not yell and then end up walking on eggshells and then saying, not saying what they want to say. And then their teenager is the boss of them. And so that didn't work. So they go right back to the first one. So that doesn't work. They go to the second. It's like, and it's like this whiplash effect. So this fluctuation in parenting styles it it can erode trust and respect. And so how does this inconsistency affect the long-term dynamics between parents and their teens? Uh, Yes. Yeah. So the inconsistency of trying one and the other and one and the other, and neither one is really working, which is also scientifically proven, is that your teen doesn't trust what they're going to get from you. And so um, they they actually start pushing more of your buttons. They start getting more disrespectful. They start getting more defiant. They st- even when you ask nicely a thousand times, even when you come up with stricter consequences to let them know who's boss, they just continue to push and push and push. And the acting out like backtalk and lying and you know school engagement and all of those things start to happen more, even though you're like, but I'm trying to do something different. And I think it erodes up your the parent confidence and the disconnection between you and your teen grows because this is the years where you most definitely need to solidify yourself as not only their trusted ally, doesn't mean best friend, but also um, the, the safe, that, that hanging on to the kite, like you're the anchor and they're the, they miss that kind of section. And so it can really create disconnection that's amplified into the adult years because you were doing your best, but kept doing the whiplash and didn't get the support to find which one actually works and why. So what what can parents do then? Because I, I actually feel this one deeply. You know, um, you know, I had to unpack some of the ways I was parented with my kids and and I did go back and forth, confusing myself and my kids, I'm sure. So yes. so but you but it's hard because it's not instantly natural to adopt a, a different way of parenting. So no, what do you it's do? Not. 
Well, and it's also hard because we were raised in a modality of parenting that was disproven in 1960, (laughs) which, you know, depending on who you are as a listener, that could be when your grandparents were raised and came down to, it could be when your parents were were being parented. Um, And it's still very prevalent in the school system. And so um, this is no shade on any lack of intelligence to any parent listening. This is, you were just never taught that. And I want to say also, your brain is wired to repeat what it knows. Even when you say, I swore I would never do that, or you hear your parents' words trickle off your lips and you're like, no, (laughs) this is about your brain's wiring for habitual action. So what happens is you have a gut feeling of that you want different. You you know you want different that because what, what you learned and what you're trying aren't working, but because nobody teaches us this. Nobody's told you the research-based middle ground. I wanted you to hear that. There is a research base, decades old, that lives between the 180 degrees and it's down at the 90, right at the six on the clock. Yeah. And I would say get support. Reach out to, like, I've got a lot of free resources. Um, reach out to someone. You're, you're not necessarily going to find it in a podcast or a book or whatever, because even though those are all amazing tools by experts beyond myself, now you're just going to the buffet and trying a little bit of everything. And then you go holding your team and you try a little bit of everything. And even though they're great tools, you're still inconsistent. So it's not working. You got to plant yourself and, and stick to like five key things and work those. More is not better. You know why I love having you on this show is because you attach names to things that I never knew were a thing. I didn't realize parenting whiplash was a thing. I thought maybe I was the only one going through life like this. I love oh, that so that common. it's yeah, and I love that because it's so relatable and it it instantly makes me feel better. So I'm sure it makes it people listening feel better. But also to know that it it's something that it can be fixed, right? And that's Absolutely what I think we all want to know. It can be fixed. Yeah. So and it's not your fault. The tools are available and you don't have to do it alone. Well, as always, Ali Thank you. Just a great topic. I was really excited to talk about this one. But of course, you know, because, you know, we only have so much time, we're going to go way deeper on this on the blog on what she said talk.com. But if parents want to have some one on one time with you, or maybe find out more on your site, where can they go? Uh, AllyPain.com, A-L-Y-P-A-I-N. Under my website, there's resources, lots of free stuff. There's a banner at the top with a free masterclass and on social media at AllyPain. AllyPain. All right, wonderful. Thank you, Ally, so much. Thank you. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. The pandemic has caused chaos and cracks in many of our institutions, and one of the biggest has been in education. Teachers have been sounding the alarm, and parents are understandably stressed their kids may never catch up. 
In this next segment, I'm joined by Julie Diamond, a certified teacher with 15 years of experience and the founder of Diamond Teachers Group. Julie is joining me to discuss the education gaps in literacy and numeracy that have emerged since the pandemic and how parents can support their children in bridging these gaps. Welcome to What She Said, Julie. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Candice. I do not envy parents of young kids right now. It must be such a struggle. So can you start by telling us about these gaps in literacy and numeracy that have emerged and why they're such a concern? Yeah, definitely. I mean, as an educator, it's it's been so uh, tough since the pandemic. I mean, through the pandemic, I know a lot of educators and parents were struggling with uh, closures uh, across many provinces and then the online, kind of the forced online, um, you know, and so it was it's hard because you have a lot of kids with two years gap plus, and then you had children who were already behind uh, going into primary school. Um, so they're really like two to four year gaps is what we're seeing in literacy and numeracy. And I feel for parents because, you know, a lot of them didn't sign up to be teachers, but sort of got roped into it. <laughs> yep, yep. And unfortunately, uh, you know, you still have to be in that role at home right now to make sure your kids do catch up. So what are some steps parents can be taking at home to help, you know, so I guess, supplement what's happening in the school system? Yeah, I think like, you know, it, it's kind of not fair to ask parents to kind of, you know, look into the curriculum and do curriculum specific objectives. You know, I think that would be well out of reach for for many parents, understandably so. So things that I always recommend parents doing is, um, you know, involving your child in like family planning. So if you're going on a trip, maybe involve them in the budgeting, depending on the age, right? Um, if you're making a recipe like uh, at home, involving them in that, that's a simple fractions, you know, double the recipe, that sort of thing. Um, you can even read to them if you have a primary child at home. So ages five to seven, uh, read to them at home 20 minutes a night. I usually say it makes a, a world of a difference. Um, you know, you can have them read to you, but really it's about modeling the reading is really helpful. Um, and then as well, you can uh, do board game night. Uh, that's really good for critical thinking, promoting critical thinking, which really helps with numeracy. So. And do you have a recommendation for certain types of board games? Uh, definitely. Uh, you know what? For helping with anxiety, too, with children, because, like, you know, social-emotional learning has also been a really hard thing. I know, um, these so, poor kids. Yeah, so helping with guessing games or just something that promotes, like, um, like Guess Who or if you have um, Balderdash or something that just helps children uh, with their communication skills, getting them kind of thinking outside of the box. Um Candyland for kids that are younger with numbers. Um, I mean, there's always a multiplication war for, you know, is a good card game. So the game of war and you're just kind of putting two cards down and you're having your children practice it with like multiplying the numbers together. And then whoever's, you know, gets it first. That's a, a good game as well to play. So. And what are you seeing? What are you seeing uh, as far as your business? Because you you have tutors across the country helping mm -hmm. kids. Um, are you seeing these massive gaps 
uh, as well? Yeah, yes, definitely. Um, so we're what we do is we create, you know, we assess the student within the first uh, few sessions, and then we create tailored learning goals aligned with where the, the curriculum is, uh, where they should be, as well as where they are. And we're finding a lot of the times we're having to go backwards, um, you know, in the curriculum. We're having to go, okay, you're in grade three, we're going to work on some uh, grade one curriculum objectives with you, which is something we haven't really seen with as many students, I would say, um, as we do now. And when you have to go back, does that, is that, does that, I don't know, do kids feel like they're being punished somehow? Like, how are they feeling about this? It must be difficult. Yeah. So we're just really careful with, um, you know, getting things like when we're introducing things, it's it's hard because you also want to have build their confidence too. Um, so you're really trying to not, you know, shine a light that hey, we're working on grade one things and you're in grade three. Right. You know, so it's it it really is a fine balance between even with the resources that you use because you don't want them looking at it and going, wait, what? What's this? Um, you know, this says grade one on it. So we're we're having to kind of you know tread lightly there because it's really about, um, you know, working ahead too. So preparing them, it's a balance between like working backwards and also, um, you know, getting them to be prepared for class too. So it's a working ahead of what they're doing in class so they can go into class as well, feeling empowered. So it's, it's, it's a tough balancing act for our tutors, definitely. And I'm curious, are you doing everything virtually or, or do you do in-person and, and virtual tutoring? Uh, we do all uh, virtual tutoring, one-to-one -one virtual, virtual tutoring. Yes. Yeah. Okay, excellent. So you're across the country, which is great news for, for people listening because they can access you from anywhere, which is very helpful. Um, any success stories you'd like to share maybe? Yeah, I would say um, when parents, because we were working with a school board that was actually with the government, the Ontario government, uh, and we were helping close the literacy and numeracy gaps with them last year. Uh, so we were, you know, having parents come back to us and saying, you know, my child is going into school this year and feeling so confident and just like when they come home and they have a test in their hands and and the first thing they want to do is go show their, like their, you know, our family and their sibling yeah. and put it on the fridge and that's like the first test they've been really proud of to put on the fridge. So when we hear things like that, I just, I get really excited because, you know, um, that's something that we wouldn't really be able to be a part of um, because you don't really see that as an educator when you have 35 students in a class. So the one-to-one -one is a really special thing because you feel like you've really had a part in that as well. Well, I mean, I can only imagine that business is booming for you uh, post-pandemic here uh, with all of these kids. Uh, but you also share resources and tips for parents yes. all over the place. Yes. Uh, so where can people uh, connect with you if they want to work with you or even just, you know, connect with you to find some resources to help them? Yeah, definitely. So we, um, you know, I'm, I'm posting weekly blogs. Uh, you can find it at diamondteachersgroup.ca. Um, you know, we have the, the blog section there. Uh, they can sign up for our email newsletter. Uh, we have we offer um, seasonal discounts as well as uh, different tips and tricks to help at your child at home uh, for all ages. So we do elementary and high school as well. Thank you so much for joining me today, Julie. Thanks, Candice.
Making the decision to separate from a spouse is an emotionally challenging path to navigate. Dr. Barbara Landau from Separation Pathways is a renowned lawyer, psychologist, and mediator who has dedicated her career to helping couples navigate the complexities of separation and divorce in a more compassionate and constructive manner. Today, she joins me to share her insights and advice for couples facing this difficult journey. Welcome to What She Said, Barbara. Oh, thank you very much, Candice. It's a pleasure to be here about a very difficult issue. Absolutely. It is a very difficult issue. I know this from firsthand experience. (laughs) So in your experience, what are some of the most common challenges couples face when they decide to separate? I think that the, the hardest thing for parents is to think about the impact on their children. That's what people come in the door worrying about. Um, I guess next is they worry about finances. Um, they worry about how they're going to afford their future. Um, given that it's so difficult for people to afford one home, how are they going to afford two? And so then the next thing they worry about is where are they going to live? Um, and uh, And then it comes down to other things like what's what's going to happen with their f- family relationships um very often people have good relationships with each other's family um or friends do friends have to choose sides so there's there's the um uh, impact on children there's the emotional stuff how am i going to get through my next day and the week after and the week after there's the social impact um, you know, uh, my my life's going to change. And very often it's my identity is going to change. You know, I was a I was a Mr. or a Mrs. as part of a couple. And now who am I? So I think all of those things are are challenges. But um, today, financial concerns are, are a big worry. And we all know that the traditional litigation system can often exacerbate the stress and conflict of a separation. So what are the alternatives that couples can consider before they go down the path of of through family the family court system, for example? Okay, well, you've touched on what I've spent the last number of decades working on. Um, I was the chief psychologist at the family court, and I was appalled, actually, by seeing good people writing horrible affidavits about each other and humiliating each other. And then what the courts didn't seem to realize is when they walked out the door at the end of the day, they had to co-parent. And that's a job that you're going to have for the next 40 years. So um, I really worried about it. And at that time, I created something called problem-solving conferences because I hadn't heard the word mediation. I brought both parents together and I asked them, what are some of the issues that are concerning you? What are the options you've considered? What might you agree on? And then I just wrote it up for the judge and that was the end of the case. And lawyers thought this was, oh my goodness, this is quite traumatic, bringing both people together. It actually turned out to be wonderful. So the process that I'm the most enthusiastic about is a mediation process where a neutral facilitator helps people uh, have a conversation, a reasonable conversation, guides them, kind of an orchestra leader, not the one playing the instruments. So the parties make their own decisions about what they want, but guiding the conversation in a supportive way, not taking sides, but somebody who's knowledgeable about the kinds of issues you need to address 
and then helps you collect the information you need and get through the process. Well, that's why I created Separation Pathways. So after um, decades of uh, being a person who has uh, enthusiastically supported this option of mediation, which now even the legislation considers a preferred option, unless there's issues of high risk. So if it's a high conflict couple, if there are issues of domestic violence, this may not be the appropriate uh, resource, but I'm, but that's something at least that needs to be considered. So mediation where people are guided down a path, and that's why I called it separation pathways. Um, and if I tell you a little bit about it, I think it would give people a clear idea of what this option looks like. There are other options, and I can I can comment on them. But um, in the separation pathways that I created was because separating people said they were so confused, they were so lost. This was not something they anticipated, and they felt just lost in the system. And they saw their friends and and other people go through a long, adversarial, very expensive divorce, and they wanted a different approach. So we we have a brief questionnaire for separation pathways to find out about whether there's a safety issue and to find out whether people are prepared to work out their issues out of court. The people who don't want the five-year, multi-thousand-dollar uh, approach. Okay, and then we do an individual intake uh, phone call with each person. Again, to check for safety, but also to find out what their priorities are. People are, are at different places. They may not be ready to jump into everything. They may be ready to address one issue, uh, whatever. We find out a little bit about their priorities and, and what they want to accomplish. They then have a separation planning meeting. This is the absolute best part of our whole process. Two hours to stand back, let those emotions kind of cool down because everybody's feeling scared, angry, hurt, humiliated, whatever, but an opportunity to have a, a an individual who guides them through the process of thinking through what might be the best way to approach their particular issues. And if they have other concerns, like a special needs child or uh, emotional needs that they're so depressed they can't really f focus at this time, or uh, substance abuse, we help them get the resources that they need. So in that two-hour meeting, which is a fixed cost, very low cost meeting, uh, they get to explore what option might be best for them. So mediation is the one that most people choose. But if they're a couple who really can't get along, they really are in, in an intractable situation, then mediation arbitration is another option where you try to resolve whatever issues you can in a cooperative way. And when you get stuck, you have a person who's got the expertise, usually a lawyer, who will then be like rent a judge who will make a decision for you. So the thing that's uh, really wonderful about our processes is they happen quickly and they are short-lived. And whatever people choose for the next step after the planning meeting is a fixed cost package based on what they want to address. So if they just want to deal with parenting, there's a parenting package. If they don't have children or they're older, 
there's support and property issues. And if they want to deal with everything, there's a comprehensive package. And what we do is we take the money they spent on that planning meeting and we apply it to the cost of the package. So they get they get a rebate. Okay. And then when they've reached an agreement, and so far everybody's reached agreements, um, they get a, a small package for independent legal advice because the lawyers that we have working with us are very supportive of our process. They trust what we're doing. They trust the wonderful professionals we have. And so they're not there to stir the pot and make it adversarial. They just want to check that people understand what they've agreed to, that they've provided the financial information that's required in order to make legally binding decisions. Um, and there's no coercion. And that's it. They get a separation agreement. So they've either had a memorandum of understanding at the end of the mediation um, or an award at the end of the MEDARB, and then they finalize it if they choose with a separation agreement. And it all happens as quickly as they're ready to move. Well, it sounds like this is a dream process. Honestly, uh, I'm listening in in wrapped attention here uh, because I went through a very contentious divorce process. So uh, this is great. And so I, I encourage people who are listening, right. who are just at the beginning stages of this to really to reach out to you because uh, divorce, the divorce process through the family court system as it exists is is traumatizing. It is awful. And I really, I, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. So if people want to connect with you, Barbara, and find out more about how to, to do this in a kinder, gentler way, uh, how can they connect with you? They look at www.separationpathways.ca and they're going to find our, our website. And you know, so many, when when people separate, it's all about how they're feeling. But uh, people run to court in, into this adversarial battle, and it doesn't solve their feelings. So what I like to think of for people is, if you do things in a, in a gentler way, it's going to be really important for your children. It's going to lower the conflict for them, and you're going to feel better much quicker. Couldn't agree with you more. Thank you so much for joining me today, Barbara. Thank you so much for this interview and good luck with your future life. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 1059 The Region. TV's The Morning Show's pedigree is unassailable. It's smart, timely, personable, and as addictive as it gets. Set in the universe of a top-profile American television morning news show, we see backstage, based on knowledge of actual morning show veterans, including Diane Sawyer, through a prism of drama, intensity, anxiety, fear, and brinkmanship. The newsroom, characters, highs and lows, and the desperate need for power are all part of daily life. Season 3 writer and showrunner Charlotte Stout, known for Homeland, spoke with what she said's Anne Brody. 
Charlotte, the uh, the morning show, like Homeland, um, is set in a place where consummate professionals are working at a breakneck speed in claustrophobic environments with a lot of personal stuff going on. I mean, that is a it's 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 claustrophobic. It's true to life. I imagine I worked in a newsroom for twenty six years, so I will say yes, it's true true to life. Um, do that, does that kind of environment that you're creating here in the morning show, does that excite you? I always love it when characters are wrestling with both operational problems and emotional problems at the same time and how those things are informing each other. And that's obviously was such a, a key dynamic in Homeland that it, it does, you're right, transfer to this show in the same way. I think that's true. You also have created a very authentic news world. I remember my boss once called our newsroom a meat grinder. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds rough. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was wild. Uh, but you've sort of done it here more in an emotional sense. Um, everyone has something to gain or lose. Everyone's playing a game. Everyone has their alliances. I mean, it's kind of primitive in a way you know, the way people behave with one another. But I mean, that's just the way it goes. There's so much on the line here. Do you think it being in news and being on air creates a special kind of psychology? I think so. I mean, from what I understand, talking to people who really do this, a lot of it, you know, you're just one, you're just sleep deprived in terms of the morning show people that they've never, they haven't had a good night's sleep in years, basically. And the news is just moving so quickly. I think that's the other thing is just you're scrambling with these breaking stories and it's just all hands on deck all the time. And that kind of environment, as you say, in this enclosed space where it's always dark and you don't know if it's like 8 a.m. or midnight <laughs> creates a kind of hothouse atmosphere, I think. I think you're absolutely right. I do find it very extremely authentic, except your anchors seem to get away with a lot. They didn't in ours room, but but yours do. <laughs> and I suppose it's because they have a much broader canvas, like the whole country. Um, and, you know, their faces, their fortune. I mean, would you explain that to me? The, the morning shows bring in so many ad dollars, right? So the, these as you say, these spaces are very powerful. I mean, they, they equate to money. And I think obviously, you know, Alex's show when she had COVID saved, you, you know, Corey's streaming service. So I think, and Corey is very aware of that. So I think you're right. They have, the talent really does have enormous influence. You know, it may be outsized compared to, compared to what is real. And I, I can't really speak to that, but I think they're very, very powerful. You know, Alex is the face of UBA, so it's they can't fire her. So, uh, and, and she can make demands. She can absolutely make demands. They can all make demands and have them met. I mean, most of the time. Or at least try, yes. Or try, yes, uh, with a good explanation. <laughs> but also, I'm concerned about Taylor Holland's character because, you know, is it ageism? Are you going to save her? Is she, will she come uh, back? You know, Holland is one of the great great actors. She is just a consummate professional. And I I think she is beloved by everyone who works with her. So she, she may not be all the way gone yet. Is, is there, might there be something else for her to do in this world? Yes, there could be. 
Oh, that's thrilling. That's very exciting. Uh, it's great that you have such talented actors who can uh, recreate this heightened, heightened everything. And as anchors, always have the appearance of, uh, of power and beauty and togetherness. You know, I'm together kind of thing. And they can do that with everything that's going on behind. So these actors, I think, are really clever at revealing both sides almost simultaneously. Can you tell me how you talk to them about that? I think it's really looking for, you know, the, the morning show, just the literal morning show, the teacup, you know, that's on the show is a wonderful um, stage for people to carry their private conflicts <laughs> into their work. And it's just a wonderful device, I think, just, you know, for writers that they're, they have to, you know, they, Chris walks in and somebody is, you know, spray painted a church with what she wrote in her post. And that's terribly upsetting to her, but she still has to talk about, you know, who won the cake wars show. <laughs> and I think that, um, sort of schizophrenia is something we all kind of carry because on one hand we're, you know, reading about Kim Kardashian and then on the other hand, we're reading about what's happening in Gaza and that those two news feeds are sitting right next to each other. And there's a sort of cognitive split, like how to, and also an emotional split. It's like, how do we hold these things? Do you think that uh, people who deal with that constantly develop kind of a, sh a shell or a, uh, resilience. I mean, which, which is it? I think people deal with it in different ways. And, you know, I mean, sometimes you have an affair on morning television in America and you both get fired and then sometimes you don't, you know, it kind of really depends on, I think, yes. uh, it depends on your, depends on your power. And then also some people, you know, Chris Cuomo left CNN and he's, he's still reporting and, Maybe he's more passionate than ever because, you know, it's it's a smaller audience. You know what I mean? So it's 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 interesting. I think it really depends on your personality. And some people are more resilient than others. I want to thank you, Charlotte. This has been so interesting and continued fortune with the morning show and whatever else and some song and dance I hope you get. <laughs> song and dance. Maybe we'll get some of that in the morning show in season four. Uh, that'd be fun. A fundraiser. <laughs> yes. Thank, thank you so much for your time. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.